This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Driving Outcomes, your source for inspired solutions to address the most pressing leadership concerns of today. On each episode, we examine the latest developments in applied research and education and how it impacts your business and social outcomes. Our host, Tracy Shirachi, brings you conversations with groundbreaking researchers, educators, and business leaders who are changing the face of leadership every day. And now, here's Tracy. Hi, everyone. I have the pleasure today of introducing Kelsey Morgan. Uh, Kelsey, would love for you to share about your organization. I know the last time we talked, we focused specifically on Willow International, but since then, um, have obviously evolved and grown bigger. And so would love for you to introduce um, to our audience, you know, who the organization is today and your work and just share with uh, individuals globally what you're doing. So I'm going to hand it over to you if you don't mind. Yes. Thank you, Tracy. It's so lovely to be on here with you. We love working with the mark and excited to share about the evolution of our organization. So yes, last time we spoke, we were known as Willow International, and our work was in East Africa, in Uganda, working with survivors of human trafficking as they healed from their exploitation and went on to rebuild their lives and reintegrate back into community. We also were working there to change the systems that fueled human trafficking, which means working um, with the justice sector, increasing the access to justice for survivors, ensuring that traffickers are held accountable for their crimes, and increasing awareness of the crime and exploitation in the country. But our organization has a desire to grow, and we know that human trafficking impacts 40 million people around the world, and being in one location was amazing. We were making great impact, but we just had this hunger for more, and I began talking to a leader of another organization called 10,000 Windows a few years ago, and he and I were just ruminating around this really crazy statistic that of the 40 million people victimized by human trafficking, less than 1% are identified and even less than that get access to care. And to us, it's just mind-blowing. Millions and millions of dollars are being spent on this issue Yet we're not making the progress. I think many of us in the space believe that we should be making. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. But one of the reasons we see is that there aren't proven models that are replicated around the world. And so we started brainstorming about what if we brought our two organizations together, Willow working in East Africa and 10,000 Windows working in the Philippines, both of us working with survivors of trafficking, both of us looking at the systemic issues that drive trafficking. What if we came together and made our vision bigger, made our vision global, and through our combined resources could replicate our models around the world? And we both didn't want to have this colonizing approach where we go in and plant our flag in a new country and start from the ground up. You know, as an evaluator, that takes so much time and money. You have to go in, do a landscape analysis, understand the culture, understand what drives trafficking. I think organizations spend a ton of money just in that phase. And then there's a lot of time and money 
wasted on the learnings and the failures from going into a country that you're not familiar with. And we know through our collaborations, through working with Helen at Chabdai and many others, that there's grassroots organizations all around the world already doing this work or eager to do this work. And if they had the resources and the mentorship and training, they could actually greatly increase their ability to serve more survivors and to provide them with quality care. So that's what we've set out to do. We are now continuing our work in Uganda and the Philippines and launching some projects to pilot this new model of building the capacity of grassroots organizations. Well, I think what's really important is you've identified that there's commonalities across countries, even though each country and culture is diverse and has and their differences. There's also common, I'm sure, factors that you're seeing in human trafficking, right? Things that lead to it, things that result from it, whatever. And so why try to reinvent the wheel for each country and like you said, institute a whole new process and a whole new framework when you can use a common framework across different geographic areas and then adapt it and customize it to culture and to people and to other, you know, uh, differences. So I think that's like just a, a wiser way and a smarter way of working too, because you'll utilize resources a lot better. Yeah, and we we can do that easily when working through local frontline organizations who already exist there. They understand the needs of the community. They understand the needs of the survivors. And so we can go in, show them our model, work with them to adapt it, and then implement pretty quickly. And one of the things that was so valuable to our organization as we got started was having that mentorship and having someone walk the journey with us because there are so many commonalities. There are best practices that exist. They just usually stay within the organizations. They're not widely disseminated. And many grassroots organizations are so busy doing the work, they're overwhelmed with their caseload. They're getting referrals of survivors after survivors. They don't always have the time to go and read a 30-page document around one best practice. So what an organization did for us was they came in, they shared with us all of their their learnings. They shared, shared with us where they failed, where they had stumbled and helped us learn from that so that we didn't make those same mistakes. They took policies and practices for how you best empower survivors, how you protect survivors in a shelter, how you care for staff. And we were able to then work with them to adapt it to our context and quickly implement. And I'm excited. I'm excited to do that for other organizations. I get phone calls and emails all the time asking people, hey, can we learn from what you've done? Can we come visit you? Can you come visit us? And now we have the ability to package that up and make it a formal program that we take to the world. Which I think is the way it should be. Like that's a good use of resources. Why reinvent the wheel if you don't need to? And chances are you can draw from different industries, sectors, different, um, you know, countries and be able to build just a better package versus reinstituting or starting from scratch every single time. I mean, that's one thing that we like to advocate is, you know, we'll work with government clients, we'll work with nonprofits, we're working with, you know, um, businesses or corporations, each has their own approach and different ways of doing it, different languages, different dynamics, things like that. But there are also a lot of commonalities amongst different parties that can all be utilized more effectively. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, as a as a researcher, I read the articles that are out there working 
um, articles that look at evaluations of programs. There's very few in the anti-trafficking space, but those exist, those that do exist, they paint a similar story. Survivors want economic empowerment. They need connection to safe, supportive relationships in their family, in their community, with other survivors. Um, they just want to be able to go back and get their needs met, their financial needs, their social needs, the same things that we have those needs. That's what they're asking for. And so it's not that different from country to country. How it's how it looks in the country may be a little different, but those common tenets of what an aftercare program should be doing, um, they exist. Well, it's humanity, right? What you just highlighted is um for all of us, right? If you have economic inability to economically provide for yourself and your family, right? Then you then it makes all these other things like homelessness, food insecurity, human like there's less likely to occur, right? Yeah. And so we inherently know this. It's just that we don't always, I think, actively think about it. But it makes total sense, right? Like economics will actually help solve a lot too. Obviously there's other dimensions like the social aspect, the psychology, like there's all these other, it's not just one factor um, as a uh, cause and effect, but I think it's understanding like it's, there are certain common denominators that make sense for why things come about and why things occur. Mm-hmm. So, and I think what's even more impressive is Kelsey, tell them where you're located and where your partner is located because you're talking with me from here in California, right? And your business partner is also where is where are they located? And then you guys are doing this work overseas, um, physically, geographically from here in the US, right? Yeah, yeah. So we have a remote team. It's pretty wild. It's very fun when we all get to be together, but the uh, my business partner, Jeremy Floyd, who was the CEO of 10,000 Windows and is now the CEO of Everfree. I don't know if I said our new name. Our new name is Everfree. That is what we have rebranded as because we want those we serve survivors and communities to be free forever. And sadly, that's not the case. There's... Um, high rates of re-victimization amongst this population. But yeah, Jeremy's in Tennessee. I'm in California. We have another staff member here. We have another staff member in Canada. We have a staff member in Washington. And then we have a large team. Our team in Uganda is, I believe, 75 staff right now. Our team in the Philippines is 15, and we are growing. So it's been really fun, but lots of learning with managing teams remotely, all sorts of technology to get used to and understand. But I love it because you're a living example of what a lot of organizations are talking about and grappling with, which is how do you adapt to a hybrid and or 100% remote company? I know for ourselves, we went from a hybrid to 100% remote during the COVID period, and we love it. It's It's been phenomenal in terms of your ability and uh, to adapt and to scale and to uh, change. But obviously, like you said, there are challenges too between time zones. Um, you can't just walk up to somebody and tap them on the shoulder and say, hey, do you have a minute? Um, and like I think you said, like technology becomes just more instrumental. And that's what you guys are learning too is, um, and the computer, like you're just constantly always interacting yes. on the computer. Everyone's one dimensional, not three dimensional. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so um, that's always something that's kind of interesting. Um, what are you doing now that, what are some of the challenges that you're seeing and facing as a result of the pandemic and as the pandemic continues? Because I don't want to say that it's done. 
I don't want to say that it's completed. I think it's um, in different stages across the world globally, and it's being respectful of that. So what are some of the challenges that you guys are specifically seeing in country um, where hopefully listeners that are listening can brainstorm and think of ways to get involved or help um, provide different ideas or thoughts on um, helping you in the efforts that you guys are working on. So I was wondering if you could highlight and don't mind sharing you know, some of the challenges you're seeing and facing um, across the globe. Yeah, so I think common across the counter-trafficking space, when the pandemic hit, many countries, especially in the developing world, were in pretty strict lockdowns for prolonged periods of time. Schools were shut down in Uganda for two years. The Philippines also had a really strict lockdown. And what we saw was survivors who had gone through our program, who were thriving, who had thriving businesses, suddenly became vulnerable again because the economic situations in their country just became very dire. And one of the things that we quickly did, thanks to many of our funding partners, was launch an emergency fund. And so we were able to give cash disbursements for food and medical care because many people in our program who, like I said, they were doing so well, they were back, they were thriving and the pandemic hit and they were like many people in the country just in really desperate situations. We also saw situations of domestic violence Mm -hmm. and violence in the home increase um, largely as a result of the economic crisis. So that was a challenge for us was managing the large number of clients that were already in our program, and then managing a large number of prior clients who were once again vulnerable and needed help and doing all of that remotely. So our case managers were constantly on the phone. They were trying to do counseling over the phone. They were trying to get disbursements done over the phone. And we're seeing the lingering impacts of that. The country where the countries where we work, they still haven't recovered economically. Um, Like we were talking about earlier, we're seeing, especially in Uganda, a very high population of educated youth who Mm -hmm. are in a country with high economic unemployment. And so these youth are educated, they're ready to work, they want to work, and there's no opportunities for them. And so they begin looking abroad. And many of the, the situations that they think are real jobs end up being trafficking situations. I believe a stat just came out from the Global Fund to End Modern Slavery, one of our funding partners, that 89% of Ugandans who migrated to the Gulf countries for work ended up exploited and trafficked, which is such a high percentage. All of those people thought that they were going for real jobs. They were going to send money back to their families to take care of their children, and they end up being exploited. And those cases that we see specifically to the Gulf they come back with severe health complications, severe mental health complications, many of them needing inpatient and outpatient psychiatric care, many of them needing major operations because of the exploitation that they have endured. It's it's really bad. So while the pandemic may be slowing down in many parts of the world, the impacts I believe we'll continue to see for many years. So how, are, how would you combat that, right? Because what's the best practice or tips for, like you said, if these students are looking for jobs and just like any of us getting on the internet and looking for a job and you're just trusting and hoping that the party on the other side is legitimate and credible and whatever it may be. And then you pick up to move, like what, 
controls or what kind of um, things can be put in place to prevent that from happening from either from a student side in Uganda where they're able to I see certain characteristics that, hey, wait a minute, like education around like not everyone is going to be kind and, and trustworthy and stuff. And so here are things to look for and or how do you address it from the other side, which is the illegitimacy of, you know, it's a moral, ethical, all these other things. But how do you address it from that side, too? Yeah, so we're trying to address it on a few different levels. First, with the youth, you have to take a different approach to how you spread awareness. Um, You can't just come in with a a story and think that they're going to care or listen. Peer-to-peer education is usually the best form. So we've worked to set up clubs on college and high school campuses called Student Alliance. And these clubs um, elect presidents, and then they are responsible for taking those awareness messages to the students on their campuses and the students in their community, that's been really effective because it is that peer-to-peer approach. It's not like, you know, it's not like a 40-year-old coming in, like, you know, the DARE programs we went through that turned out to not be (laughs) effective. It's a peer that you trust. We've also, we did a huge social media campaign. Um, We've done it for the last two years on World Day Against Human Trafficking. We actually do the whole month of July through our coalition, which is 42 organizations working together collaboratively in Uganda. And we reached 14 million people with awareness messages. And that's been impactful. We're working on awareness campaigns at the airport so that people see those red flags before they actually leave the country. And then we're working um, through advocacy. So many many of these countries have agreements. So Uganda has signed agreements with these countries to send migrant laborers. And so if we can impact that from a policy standpoint, make sure that those protections are in place, make sure that there's an embassy or a consulate to support victims, a place to report to, we can curb it that way. And lastly, we're working on economic empowerment. So we partner with Street Business School. They're an economic empowerment program, and we implement their model in Uganda and in the Philippines. And so we're we're looking at stopping cycles of re-exploitation, which we know is common. So if we can ensure that the survivors we work with or the family members of the survivors we work with are empowered economically, then we know it stops that cycle of abuse and exploitation exploitation in that family unit. And it trickles into the community as well. We've seen such incredible stories of survivors who are empowered economically go on to employ other vulnerable people, mm-hmm. including survivors. Um, the, the young woman who leads our survivor advisory committee, she is now training other survivors through her shop. And she has a dream to employ others, which is just so, so beautiful. And We'll, we see that continue. When you empower survivors, they go on not just to think about themselves, but they want to prevent this from happening to other people as well. So we need to give them a voice. We need to give them resources because who better to combat human trafficking than someone who's been through it and understands it more than you or I ever could. Which I think is super important. That's a critical piece. And I think the other piece is that like what you're highlighting is there's an economic component which will also help reduce the at-risk chance of it happening too because you're reducing the vulnerabilities that lead to it and that being one of it. So I like how you highlighted and I appreciate that like kind of like a five or six prong approach 
because it's not just, oh, here's one solution that will solve everything. It's you have to come at it from different directions and different um, perspectives. So I appreciate that you sharing and kind of highlighting for us, what does that look like? Because it is a complex um, issue and concern that is not a quick fix by no means. I mean, none of the things that we work with socially are ever that way, but even more so, like you just highlighted the different attributes. So mm-hmm. And it has to be collaborative. Any organization who tells you they have the answer, them and them alone, to ending trafficking is not being honest because it is done through collaboration. We all need to focus on our strengths and then partner with people who have complementary strengths. Well, and one thing that I always like too is that it needs to be like, even the partners that you don't think would be great partners, you do need to work with those. So I say, for instance, like law enforcement, I come from a law enforcement family, obviously. So it's like, there's usually a bad rap in terms of like, hey, how law enforcement treats victims of human trafficking. But there also, there has to be a mutual understanding where it's, they have to understand each other better. And so that's an example where I say like law enforcement, I think gives a bad rap for like its view and how it treats people are victims of human or survivors of human trafficking. And it's really not everybody. It just has to, the law enforcement just has to change its approach and understanding. And so it's like a meeting of the minds to determine what should that be to have that effect and to make that change. So I know like even locally, um, you know, law enforcement groups will meet with different nonprofits or organizations to better educate and understand and vice versa. And I thought that was like really powerful because people typically think they're at ends with each other, right? But they don't have to be. No one has to be on opposing sides, so to speak, if they find a way to find mutual understanding. Yeah, so. and we have to we have to give law enforcement opportunities to understand. We have to partner together. I just had a really wild experience. I identified um, a potential trafficking case here in Orange County and reported it to law enforcement. And it it did end up being trafficking. And the officer called me and said, I had no idea. We've, We've been educated on human trafficking, but we were not aware of these signs. And we are going to learn from this. We want to learn more. Like he was so humble and eager to learn mm-hmm. more. And that's, I, that's what I see time and time again with law enforcement and people in the justice sector, not just here in Orange County, but in the development. They're human world. beings though. We forget they're human beings with heart. They don't, they go into that profession because they care for people, just like other people go into other professions to care for people. Mm-hmm. And I think we forget that. And so yeah. it doesn't surprise me that the heart of the individual you're talking to is like, Hey, I learned from this. Like, what could I do better? Yeah. Yeah. And trafficking is an evolving thing. Traffickers are in it for money. They're business people. And so economics. So drugs, drugs is economics. And so they're always changing their methods. And so we have to work together so that the things that we're seeing as service providers get communicated to law enforcement, because it could be a totally new way that traffickers are working, that the training this law enforcement officer went to last year didn't include this new tactic, so they don't know to look for it. And we see it in Uganda. We've the trainings, I think you guys saw the evaluation that we did. The feedback from one of the law enforcement officers was, oh my goodness, I'm now looking back at all of my cases and seeing that I missed it. I need to go back and revisit these cases. I classified it as 
rape or kidnapping, I didn't know that that was trafficking. And now I need to go back. Well, something that was interesting that has come up, like I've had discussions in our family about it's like, for instance, um, you know, like we always think it's males that are the traffickers that are imposing on females when it, in actuality, there are a lot of cases where the gender is switched. It's females that are either helping to recruit and or build yeah. relationship and rapport with other females or females building relationships with males. Like you, it's, and that's not in our scheme of what we think, like, just like moms tend to trust other females with their kids. I mean, right. It's just like how society sometimes views things. Mm-hmm. And I think to your point, when the human traffickers are thinking about things, they're that smart that they like pick up on those human dynamics of easy trust is what I'll call it. Yeah. And they're able to, and you know, some people may not even believe that they're like, how could a female become a, you know, trafficker, but it's so common. It's so common. It shocks me every time, but so many of the traffickers are women. This case I just mentioned females. Exactly. But it goes against our schema of how we view the world or what we, who we think the victim is or who we think the perpetrator is or whatever. Now I'm using like law enforcement terminology, (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, like, it just, I mean, it's just that complex and there's a psychology to it too. Mm -hmm. So, but I could go on all day talking about the subject. I know you can too, Kelsey, (laughs) we're very like passionate about what we do, but really appreciate your time with us and just sharing with others, how to um, learn more about what you're doing, learn about human trafficking in general, and just ways that individuals can get involved and really learn more. So thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And thank you to all of you who are listening. We would love to get you involved with our organization. If, if this work resonates with you, if you want to support survivors, please check out our website, everfree.org. And we would love to get you linked up with us. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Driving Outcomes. If you'd like to listen to or download other episodes of Driving Outcomes, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast networks. Please also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn as The Mark USA. We hope you'll join us again next week for more conversations with today's leaders who are driving for results and achieving phenomenal business outcomes. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? (laughs) I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. 
Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help one million fulfilled women each achieve one million dollars in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.